Welcome to the Dangling Conversation. Today I am joined by Father Kevin of St. Marie Orthodox Church here in Cleveland, Tennessee. Um, and Father Kevin, I just wanted to ask if you could give a brief summary explanation to as to what orthodoxy is to the unaware Protestant. Uh, sure. Literally, the word orthodoxia means right glory or right glorifying. The Orthodox Church considers herself to be the church that, that Christ set out uh, and established through the, the apostles. So it has existed mainly in what became the eastern part of the Roman Empire, uh, particularly when Constantine moved the empire to Constantinople, New Rome, which is the, the, the official title of it. Most people, I, I think, would have if, have, if they've heard of the Orthodox Church at all, it's either in a textbook, mm, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, the Great Schism of 1054, right? So we're yeah. like a footnote in the history of Christianity in the West. Or uh, they know some uh, people who are immigrants to our country. So they've heard of the Greek Orthodox Church or the Russian Orthodox Church. Or um, I think in Seinfeld, if anybody remembers Seinfeld, there was a reference to the Latvian Orthodox Church. Um so it's the church that's mainly existed in the East, Eastern Europe, Greece, and those places for the last 2,000 years. So everything that's happened in the West, so after Rome left the communion of the Orthodox in 1054, now all of the developments that happened in the West, right? There's mm -hmm. the, the Reformation, there was the Counter-Reformation, there was the Renaissance, there was the Enlightenment. None of that happened in the Orthodox Church. Yeah. So the faith has been maintained since the Apostolic Era. And our worship reflects that, I think. And so I think, yeah, I think that's, that's a bit of an introduction. Could you kind of explain what the difference between, like, the Russian and the Greek Orthodox? Because, like, they're in communion with one another, but they're also, is it considered separate dioceses? Is that the correct term? Well, according to canon law, right, uh, so established by the, the seven ecumenical councils, mm -hmm. And even local councils or smaller councils before the great, the great big ones, like the Council of Laodicea, for example. The Orthodox Church is broken up into uh, territorial churches. Yeah. So the great five centers of Christianity in the early church were Rome, Constantinople, Jerusalem, Antioch, and Alexandria. Mm -hmm. And those were all sort of geographically based— and so now the Orthodox Church is comprised of 15 autocephalous churches, which are national churches or churches that, that run along geographical lines. Could you define autocephalous? So autocephalous uh, literally means self-headed. Uh, it means that that particular church can elect it and ordain its own bishops. So there are other churches that are under mother churches, mm. and we would call them either autonomous which can elect their own bishops, but those bishops have to be confirmed by the mother church. Yeah. In other words, they don't ordain their own bishops. And so don't ask me to name all of the churches because there are 15 of them and I forget them all the time. <laughs> yeah. But Russia and Greece would be two of those autocephalous churches. Right. And the Orthodox Church in America would be another of those autocephalous churches. And so they all recognize one another. Yes. Um, how does that... Uh, and I'm, forgive me, but I'm probably going to end up doing this frequently. I don't want to like hold you guys to the standard of Catholicism, Sure. but that is a base of reference. Oh yeah, 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 um, absolutely. Where a lot of like, you know, from a Protestant perspective, seeing Catholics where it's like, oh, it's the Pope. And then it goes on down. Right. But for you guys, each autocephalous church has their own head and then they meet. We, and ha we have, equals. each has its own primate or titular head. Okay. Right. So... The huge difference would be a, an autocephalous church is governed by a synod of, synod of bishops, right? So in America, I think we have, in the Orthodox Church in America, we have, I think, 13 dioceses. Okay. Uh, each has its own diocesan bishop. But together they form the synod of the, of the Orthodox Church in America. So the guy in the white hat, he, he literally wears a white hat. Everybody else wears a black hat, but he literally wears a white hat, is Metropolitan Tikkun, who is the bishop of Washington, D.C. 
Okay. So again, going back to canon law from this uh, third and fourth century, the uh, the bishop of the most important city, which is typically the capital city, is the metropolitan. Mm. Is and so all of the bishops are equal. Even the metropolitan is equal to our own Archbishop Alexander of of the South. But he is, if you will, the manifestation of the unity of the Orthodox Church in America. So when the Holy Synod speaks, it's Metropolitan Tikkun that does it. Okay. Right? And so, but in contradistinction with Rome, uh, where the Pope has universal jurisdiction over everyone within the Roman Catholic Church, right. Metropolitan Tikkun is only Bishop of Washington, D.C. Yeah. So he cannot even travel in any of the rest of the country without that uh, diocesan bishop inviting him or giving him permission. Okay. Right, so he can't come to the diocese of the South and say, I need you guys to do this. Likewise, Archbishop Alexander doesn't go to Detroit until right. uh, I think bishop, uh, he was just elected two day, two, last week. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, so Ladika Alexander couldn't go into Detroit and say, okay, I need you guys to do this. Right. So each bishop has their own diocese. Each bishop is equal. Mm-hmm. So that goes for the Patriarch of Moscow, uh, who is the Bishop of Moscow. Mm-hmm. Constantinople is the Bishop of Constantinople. And Alexander, and it goes, it goes on down the line. Yeah. And so for your, in terms of your guys's clergy, what is the structure of that between like priests and bishops and deacons? In the understanding of the Orthodox, we have... Uh, the priesthood of Christ, right? That's the only mm. priesthood. Mm. But that that priesthood uh, has, if you will, three different manifestations, which is bishop, priest, and deacon. Okay. Both the deacon and the priest serve the table. Okay. Right. The deacon uh, specifically. This is going to sound really, really dismissive of our deacons, but it's not. They're servers, right? They serve the table. Yeah. The priest is the hand of the bishop. Mm. So in St. Maria of Paris Orthodox Church, there is one spiritual voice, there is one shepherd, there is one uh, sort of unifying figure, and that's Archbishop Alexander, and I am his hand. Mm. So within Orthodoxy, no deacon or priest or bishop are ordained in an abstract sense. You are ordained for a specific altar. So each clergy person, each bishop, each priest, each deacon is attached to a specific altar. Yeah. Right? So I am attached to our altar at St. Maria Paris Orthodox Church. I can go and I can visit other churches with my bishop's blessing um, and the bishop of the diocese that I'm going to be traveling in, right? Because I have to get their blessing as well because we like to keep track of where our people are going. But I can't go start another church. I can't Mm -hmm. become the pastor of another church. Um, until my bishop releases me to do so, right? So as an ordained person, it's very much like the centurion that Christ encounters. I'm a man under authority. Yeah. Right? And so when you get ordained, when a person gets ordained, they are no longer their own uh, to the point where you don't travel without the blessing of your bishop. I mean, our bishop is, is, is very, very kind. He's given us a, like, if you go out of the diocese, let me know. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? But if you're staying within the diocese, do You're whatever. fine. Yeah. Um, and our diocese is quite large. It goes from Virginia to New Mexico. So that's, that's quite a bit of uh, traveling distance. Yeah. Is there any regulations on, like, marriage as opposed to, again, like, in, 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 uh, in comparison to the Catholic Church where across the board? The Orthodox pre- prefer their clergy to be married. Really? Uh, priests and deacons. Okay. However, there are celibate priests and deacons. There are monastic priests and deacons. So what happens is, at least in the Orthodox Church, once you accept ordination, mm-hmm. right, once you're going to be ordained and once the bishop lays hands on you, then whatever state you're in, that is the state in which you will die. Right? So if I was single when I got married, or single when I got, <laughs> excuse me, single when I got um, ordained, then I would never be married, mm. right? Because you don't want your priest who is hearing confessions 
cruising for dates within the congregation, right? Yeah. Who has spiritual authority over people who are revealing their most yeah. sort of uh, intimate sicknesses. Yeah. Right? The, the capacity for spiritual abuse is, is quite staggering. Likewise, if my wife dies, God forbid. You're to remain unmarried. I am to remain unmarried if I want to remain a priest. Ah. So if I want to marry again, I have to give up the priesthood. I have to be deposed. Does that frequently happen? I mean, it has. Uh, yeah. It frequently is a, is a really... That's a hard uh, word. <laughs> uh, ...subjective term. It does happen. But I know priests who did not. Is that like a shamed thing? Is, is there like some kind of pressure no, on No, I don't think so. Uh, I don't think so. I think with the Orthodox view marriage as eternal. Mm. Really? Yeah. Why? As the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians, I think, I think it's Ephesians, where he's talking about marriage and how it's the mystery. It's, he's talking about Christ and the church and, and the, hus- the marriage between a husband and a wife is a revelation. It is a sacrament because it is the manifestation in this world of the reality of the kingdom of God, of Christ and his church. Mm-hmm. For us, the sacramental life and everything that is revealed within sacrament is sort of eternal. So the Eucharist, the divine liturgy, baptism, all of these things are eternal things. Yeah. Um, and so and I think it's the Apostle Paul who says we will be known as we are known, right? It's not, yeah. it's not, it's not the sense in which, so we consider marriage eternal, eternal because you're participating in the sacrament, right? Mm-hmm. You have a communion with another human being that you do not share with, anyone, with else. anyone else. Yeah. And so you will be known in that fashion. That does not mean that people will, as, as Christ says, people will marry or will be given in marriage or will have, uh, will procreate or, or any of that other stuff. It, it just is simply just means that participation mm. in that communion is significant. Yeah. But that verse is also in reference to like the, the, the Pharisees are coming to Jesus and they're saying like, if this woman marries a guy and he dies and marries another guy and he dies, who should she be given to? That is just kind of like a continuation of that question, I guess, where it's just like there is some state of permanent marriage, but would that be shared in that instance? I mean, that's a question I can't answer, right? Right. right. Um, Jesus, uh, as he tells the Pharisees, and this is why I can't answer the question. Yeah. Jesus tells the Pharisees, you don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah. I mean, essentially, you don't understand the scriptures. And so it's the understanding of the Orthodox Church it's the, I would say, the consensus teaching of the church, right? This is not a, this is not a, a, a thing that's set out in an ecumenical council. Right. But it is the consensus teaching of the church that marriage is eternal. Mm. And uh, for, a, for a, a person who wants to get remarried after their spouse has died, if that person is a priest, then he would forfeit his priesthood. Mm. If that person is not a priest and w- hopes to be a priest, he will forfeit that priesthood. Yeah. If it is someone who is not a priest and they want to get married again and um, they've gone through the, the proper sort of spiritual counseling and, and all of the other stuff, then we serve the rite of second marriage, which is a penitential service. Uh, and so the tenor or the tone of the Orthodox wedding rite, which exists, I mean, there was no wedding service. There was no Christian wedding service before the 7th century. And so I think it was in 634, Justin the Emperor Justin in his new novella or new canons or new laws begins to make the church responsible for these uh, social things, right? So yeah. marriage. So the, the church had to construct a, a wedding service. But that wedding service, the ent- almost the entirety of the wedding service is about uh, martyrdom, mm. the martyrdom of the husband and the wife. Mm. And lots of babies. <laughs> okay. In the rite of second marriage, there is a single prayer for babies. And the rest of it is, forgive us. Because we can't do this. Mm. We can't... As, uh, and, and there's a quotation from Paul, it's better to marry than to burn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And so there, the recognition, that at least that the couple has, is this, this is a condescension. Yeah. Mm. And and we're weak. Right? So it's, it's an enormous step of courage 
in order to serve or in order to be wed with the rite of second marriage. Yeah. But it's also fantastically glorious, Mm. right? Because what's better than repentance, you know? What's better in the whole of our lives than repentance? Yeah. We repent, we turn around, we look towards the light, we look towards Christ, we look towards love, we look towards life because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Mm-hmm. You know, this is how John the Baptist and Christ both begin their ministry. Do, do certain priests not get married in hopes of becoming bishop one day? Or does it just kind of like, oh, I didn't meet somebody and this is my ordination, so I guess I'm just going to be... I don't know if it's ever in the hopes of becoming a bishop okay. because no one should ever hope for that. I, I honestly don't know. I, I honestly do not know. I know, I think now, two of the bishops that we have on the Holy Synod uh, were or are widowers. Mm-hmm. And the bishop, uh, Bishop Nikon, or of, of blessed memory, who ordained me to the priesthood, uh, was a widower mm. uh, before his repose. I don't know, you develop, a, you develop a unique relationship with Christ, with his church, with his people. And so, I don't know, I don't, he would certainly not, it, again, God forbid, I would certainly never want to be bishop. Why? Because if a priest and a deacon are not their own, the, that's scaled up to a thousand with a bishop, right? Because yeah. Archbishop Alexander, for example, is traveling and is in another bed and in another church what, 50 times a year, right? So maybe four weeks out of the year, he's not traveling. Mm-hmm. And those four weeks he spent on Mount Athos, right, in, in Simonas Petro Monastery, which is where he was spiritually formed. So, yeah, I wouldn't want that. I would want to be home. I would yeah. want to be, <laughs> you know, with my books, with my, you know, whatever it is, uh, my games, my couch. Yeah. I wouldn't want to be traveling that. That's just too much. Well, that was something that you had kind of talked about um, whenever my class for Doctrine of the Church had visited. You talked about how much... You kept using this phrase, matter matters. And yes. And so I, what you talking about, like your stuff, you'd miss your stuff. That kind of makes me think of that. Could you kind of expound on that? Like, what do you, I, I can't remember how you phrased it, but one of the things that you talked about is like the, the importance of substance and matter because that is God created. And do you, do you get what I'm saying? Yeah, I think so. I mean, ma- well, matter does matter, right? You right. can't be saved outside of the created order. Right. Right? You see the sun, uh, perhaps even if you can't see it, you feel its heat. Yeah. Right? The touch of someone's hand, the taste of a good tea, or whatever it may be. These, all th- these things all point us to the glory of God. They, they point to, and the glory of God specifically is the person of Jesus Christ. Mm. Um, so, for example, you know, the, the various... Uh, psalmists who write about the creation, right, in Psalm 103, I think it's 103 in the Protestant canon. I think it's, man, no, it's, it's Psalm 104. Um, <laughs> it's a psalm of creation. And, um, you know, God rides on the wings of the wind, who makes his ministers of uh, flaming fire. And he created all of these things, right? He created yeah. the lions and all of these things, and they all received their breath, right? Because in, in Greek and in Hebrew, the word for breath and the word for spirit are the same word, mm. right? So in Greek, it's pnevma, right? That means breath, and it means spirit. And so they receive their pnevma from God, right? Their spirit, their mode of existence, right? The spirit of God is, under, is understood, at least um, in, in, in the Orthodox under, uh, Church. Uh, God's breath is our mode of existence, right? So going back to the creation, and this is a, a, a long aside, I apologize. No, going back to, cre- to the creation, right? Let there be light, let there, like all of these fiats and all of these things come forth, right? Yeah. Uh, the whole of creation comes forth, whether it's plants and animals, bugs, birds, whatever it may be. Yeah. And then there's this, this break. Yeah. Right? And um, let us make. It's different verbs. Mm. It's different intent. And so we get the sense that God speaks all of these things, which is, again, God speaking is the person of Jesus Christ, who is for whom, through whom, by whom, and in whom all things are made. And there was nothing that was made that was not made by Christ, Mm -hmm. who is God himself. 
it goes from let there be in in Christ speaking all of these things into or manifesting all of these things into existence to let us make. And so he makes man, he fashions him from the dust of the earth, and then he breathes into his face his own life. Right? God breathes into the face of the human being. And in in, in in Greek, it's 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 important to understand that it's the anthropos, it's it's the human being. Mm. It's not man as in male. Yeah. Right? It's anthropos. So he breathes into the face of the anthropos his own life, his own breath, his mm -hmm. own spirit, and man becomes a living soul, which is an astonishing verse, right? And so God breathes into, as Christos Ioannaros, uh, who's a, who's a, a, a Greek uh, professor and, and, and writer um, of the 20th century, says God breathes into the face of the human being his own mode of existence, which is personhood. Mm. Right? So the human being now exists as person. Which makes sense, especially since the first human being is, if you will, the image of the last human being or the second human being, which is Christ. Mm -hmm. Right? Remember, Pilate, when he had, when Christ has has all of these things, you know, uh, the crown of thorns. He's been beaten. He's got this purple robe, and and Pilate uh, leads him out in front of the crowd and says, "Behold, the Anthropos. Mm. Behold, the human being. Right? It is that human being." who is Christ, yeah. that Adam, or the first human being, is the image of, with the task and the possibility to grow into the likeness of, of the second human mm -hmm. being, which is Christ. It, it is important, not simply because it is a good theological story that man is made from the dust of the earth. Mm. Man is quite literally matter. Man is what ninety eight percent water or some or some <laughs> such, right? Man is literally made. Uh, Adam means creature of the dirt, mm. right? So man is literally made of matter. God establishes matter. God establishes the created order, the plants and the bugs and everything else, as a gift for the human being. And so, in the cool of the day, in the garden, the pre-incarnate Christ walks with the human being in a physical way. Yeah. Everything that Christ tells us to do requires matter. Yeah. It requires human beings. It requires uh, sweat and, and incense and candles and all <laughs> of these things. And so it requires all of these things. Matter is so imp important. The created world is so important, as a matter of fact, that God becomes part of it. God wraps himself in matter. Mm. God doesn't sit up on high and declare things to us. God becomes one of us. God has flesh yeah. now. God has bones now. God has eye color and hair color. And so for the Orthodox, always considering and always taking the incarnation totally literally considers and has considered that it is through the created order that God establishes worship, mm. that God establishes the priesthood, right, the Levitical priesthood, that God establishes his covenant, right? His covenant with Abram is a physical covenant. It's not a spiritual covenant in the sense that it lacks matter, right? Because typically Christianity within the West, and I will say even more particularly um, uh, Protestantism, mm -hmm. separates spirit and matter, yeah. right? We live, as Father Stephen Freeman would say, in a two-story universe. Spirit is up here, matter is down here, and ne'er the twain shall meet, yeah. right? This is what Father Alexander Schmemann calls spiritualism versus materialism. Yeah. Both are equally wrong. What Schmemann will say is, is the spiritualists tend to be more dangerous mm. in their theological viewpoint because it is a complete lack and disregard for the gift of the created order that God has bestowed upon us. Mm. Right? So the creation is still your gift. It is still what the, 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 the master of all has given to you for life. Right? You can't live without the creation. Yeah. Many people have tried. It's never worked. Yeah. <laughs> and so in such a way, 
God becomes part of the, the created order and reestablishes and reasserts what the relationship between God and man looks like, and that's the person of Jesus Christ. And so God gives us tools, so to speak, uh, that are matter, by which we receive the grace of God and by which we are saved. Mm. Right? Peter, I think, was, I I can never remember which epistle, I think it's this first epistle, says the water, i.e. baptism, is salvation. Mm. Right? If matter is not important in our salvation, then why is Christ die on a material cross? Yeah. Why is he nailed with material nails? Why, why is he laid in a material tomb? Why does he break material bread and say, this is my body and this is, and, and material wine? And it is wine, it's not grape juice, right? It is actually <laughs> yeah, yeah. alcoholic wine. And say, this is my body and, and this is my blood. Unless you do this, this material worship, you have no life mm. in you, yeah. right? All of that to say, coming back to, to, to the thing, all of that to say matter is important. Matter is essential to our salvation and our life in Christ, because yeah. without it, uh, we're all sort of Barclay and idealists. Mm. Uh, I don't know if you guys have, have read George Barclay. He's a, I think, 17th century Irish bishop he has this idea that the, the matter doesn't exist, and we're all ideas. And so you can say uh, about this rock, he uses the example of a rock. Well, we all have a cognitive idea of what a rock is, right? This is building off Cartesian sort of, I am thinking, therefore I am, yeah. right? Which is a completely nonsensical statement from a Christian <laughs> perspective. The Christian perspective would be God is, therefore I am. But going back to, to George Barclay, so he says, we have an idea of rock, and within the idea of rock, we have the idea of its hardness, its firmness, its color, its shape, and all of these things. So when you theoretically, or quite literally theoretically, ideally kick the rock, mm. you have an idea of what the pain is, and, you, like, and all of these things are uh, ephemeral. And, and so it's pro- not real. Exactly. Uh, it's not material. Yeah, yeah, yeah right? Um, which is absolute nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. Which makes the incarnation totally useless. Completely useless. Oh, yeah, because if he didn't come down in a real material body, right. there's right. no point. I mean, it's, it's one of the early, like, one of the many early docetist uh, mm-hmm. heresies, right? Um, so matter is absolutely important. Do you feel like that that idea, that emphasis on matter is kind of, I don't want to say helps explain, but informs the use of icons within Orthodox worship? Cer- I mean, certainly the, the focus on the incarnation. I wouldn't say it was a focus on matter qua matter. It's a focus on the incarnation. Okay. Right? It's a focus on the fact that God became flesh and blood. Okay. Um. Because that's what an icon is. Yeah. An icon is a, I mean, it's wood and paint. Right. Or in the case of, like, if you're, if you're not a, a wealthy church, it's somebody printed out on the printer and stuck it on a board, right? <laughs> right so there's much less paint involved. But it has its own essence. It has its own being, which is wood and, like, matter. Mm-hmm. Right? But, but matter, at least for the Orthodox is spiritualized Mm. it not only points to the transcendent reality of the kingdom of god which will be spiritualized matter there will be a new heavens and a new earth why if matter is not important right it makes no sense so they manifest a spiritual reality so they are uh, what we would call symbol we use the term symbol to mean a thing or a person uh, that has their own essence, that has their own beingness, which is, you know, wood and paint, for example. But it participates in a reality that is not physically present. Mm. And it makes that reality physically present, even though it is not that 
reality itself, right? So I'm looking across the room and I'm seeing Mother Olga of Alaska and I'm seeing St. James and St. Uh, 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 John. So St. James and St. John and, and, and St. Olga are present, we would say, in the icons. Mm-hmm. The icons are not them themselves, but I can go up to the Apostle James and I can go up to the Apostle John and I can kiss them. Mm-hmm. And as Basil the Great says in the, in the fourth century, that veneration, that kiss passes through the icon to the prototype. Mm. But, but you're, 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 you're absolutely right. All of it is made possible because of the incarnation, mm-hmm. right? So in orthodoxy, as it was in the early church, the incarnation of God in the flesh is not plan B. There is no plan B. The incarnation was always going to happen. Hmm. And we can say this because it did happen, hmm. right? There's no hypothetical. Yeah. People get into serious trouble when they start hypothesizing about God. But the incarnation was always going to happen because it did happen. Hmm. God was always going to unite himself to the creation. God was always going to be one with his bride, mm-hmm. right? This is why, going back to Paul in Ephesians, this is why marriage is uh, the manifestation or the revelation, uh, you can even say the apocalypse, of Christ in the church, right? Because that physical union, that participation of persons, to such a degree, to such a degree that uh, the wife is the bride of God, it typifies or, or symbolizes, makes present yeah. the bride of God, and the husband makes present Christ himself. Yeah. And their conjugal union produces children, mm-hmm. right? Which the church produces, children. So absolutely matter matters. Yeah. So all of that to say, <laughs> matter matters. I, yeah, I think what you said about like the, the, uh, the Protestant idea of spirituality being above matter was something that like I definitely grew up with. Um, oh, sure. As did I. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Well, like, recently we had to read a sermon. It was by, it was by Paul Tillich. So take that for what you will. Tillich, not Tillich. Um, I've heard people like, like uh, take this with a grain of salt. I know nothing about Paul Tillich. Okay. So. Um, he was a German theologian. So uh, if that informs you at all, it informs you. It does a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's debate over whether he continued to view himself as a Christian post-World War I. Um, it, that was a whole thing where like, he watched his, um, his best friend died in his arm during the war, and then, and then whenever he came back from the war, his wife had left him. And it was just one of those things where like, he never emotionally recovered. And so people use that kind of as a way to explain um, why he took the views that he did. Um, but something that's been said about him is like, this is what happens when someone loses their faith, but continues to be a theologian. But what he, what he wrote was that, um, what makes humans unique is that they are spiritual beings trapped within material bodies that are aware of it. Um, as opposed to a bird, which is a being, but unaware of its independence. And then basically he points to the fact that and as spiritual beings, we are separated from other spiritual beings because of our bodies. Um, and there's this longing to be reunited. And it, 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 and it also talks about loneliness and depression. And it's really interesting. But in light of the idea of like, like it also does kind of make you come away with this sense that we're, we long to not be material. And then it kind of leads to that conclusion of therefore material is bad and we need to shed it. I mean, that's what I was taught when I was a kid. Yeah. I mean, that was in, indicative, I might say, of, of evangelical Protestantism as a whole. Yeah. To such an extent, there was a, there was a CCBM band in, I think, the 90s, early 90s, okay. called Earthsuit, right? So it was absolutely, perhaps not taught by the theologians, but maybe that's not necessarily, maybe that's not a terrible thing. But it was certainly the there was certainly the idea that matter is evil, mm-hmm. that matter as matter was evil, 
that the body will lead you to do things. Yeah. My spirit is willing, my flesh is weak. Right. Flesh. Mm. Sarks in Greek. Not soma mm. in Greek, right? Because Paul makes a distinction between flesh and body. Sarks, flesh, is the passions, right? The, mm. the disordered desires, right? Gregory yeah. of Nyssa would say it this way, you have never committed a sin that was a sin of the body. Uh, Your soul has always been involved in that. And indeed, the soul is the primordial, not the primordial, the, the mover of the body, right? In, in, in Latin, the word for soul is anima, right? The animating principle of the body is the soul. And so if one is sinning bodily, it is only sinning bodily, or the person is only sinning bodily because their soul is animating their body in order to participate in that sin. Yeah. Right? So the body has never been sinful in, the, in, the, in a sense of uh, that my body causes me to sin. Yeah. It's always been my motivation. It's always been my will. This is why Christ has a human will, right? And the, 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 uh, the great controversy in the late 5th, early 6th century of monothelitism, the right. idea that that Christ has a single will. And Maximus, St. Maximus the Confessor, loses his right hand and loses his tongue <laughs> yeah. because he said, no, Christ has two wills. Is that the official doctrine of just the Orthodox Church? Or is I, that also... I, for Catholics, I don't know. I assume, okay. it, I assume it is for Catholics. Okay. Uh, it's certainly the, the consensus of the Orthodox and for the non-Chalcedonians. Okay. And I know you, like, this is something that you briefly touched on, but you did grow up Protestant. Yeah, I grew up um, Pentecostal. And I guess that is something that is interesting, is, like, the Orthodox would still affirm, like, the gifts of the Spirit, correct? Depends on what gifts we're talking about. Okay. What gifts would they be? You're going to get me in trouble. <laughs> um, so whenever a Pentecostal would say gifts of the Spirit, they're primarily talking about tongues. We would say, as Orthodox, that the gift of tongues, as it has been practiced within the Pentecostal tradition, for the most part, is in error. Because if we look at the book of Acts, and we look at the speaking of tongues, the, thing, the one thing that is absolutely clear is that it was a communications tool. Mm. So the people who witnessed all of the apostles and everybody speaking in tongues were hearing the gospel in their own tongue, yeah. in their own language. It is actually not clear from the scriptural text whether the gift is with the person speaking or the person hearing, mm. or if God is somewhere you know, in between translating or, yeah. or whatever. And of course this still happens. Right? Of course, this is a, 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 a tremendous and uh, applicable gift in certain situations. It's not as necessary today as it was maybe in the first century. But the Orthodox have always understood it as, again, in continuity with the early church, that Pentecost is the undoing of Babel. Hmm. Right, so God smashed the Tower of Babel and confused the tongues, and they, so they couldn't. So there was no unity; there was disunity and everything like that. And the coming of the Holy Spirit restores that unity, so everybody can now participate in one another. Mm -hmm. Right, um, and it's clear in the Scriptures that that gift is is living. Yeah, but it's not what has it has been taken to what it has become whether that's private prayer language or whatever, yeah, right? Whatever the so the Orthodox is. would not consider that the gift of tongues. But yes, we absolutely believe in the gift of tongues. We, have, we believe in the gift of prophecy, mm. right? But there are no prophets, right? The office of prophet is dead. Yeah. It stopped with John the Baptist. Because all prophecy within the Old Covenant and all prophets existed to foretell of the coming of Christ. Right. And Jesus says, if you, uh, there's not been a prophet born of woman greater than John the Baptist, and if you can accept it, he is Elijah who is to come, right? So the prophets bookend, Elijah, Elijah, Yeah. right? 
and the coming of the God of God in the flesh. So we would say that the gift of prophecy has changed. Yeah. So a prophet is now uh, someone who who has the spiritual gift of prophecy would be what we would we, we might use the term spiritual insight. They see the truth of things. They see the spiritual truth of things, and I don't mean they see like angels and demons and 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 all and, and the like. I mean. So, uh, so there's an example, example of Father Alexander Schmemann, who's the dean of St. Vladimir's. And um, I was interviewing somebody that, that knew him uh, for a project that I was working on in seminary. And he said, Father Schmemann would do this. He said, you would go into his office and you would tell him all your problems, particularly as a student, right? You'd tell him all your problems and like, you know, like where everything is going bad. Yeah, yeah. And Schmemann was... was famously sort of impatient with (laughs) small talk and and all of these other things. And so he would tell them, whether it was a student, whether it was a bishop, none of what you said is your problem. Here's your problem. Mm. And it would be true. It would just cut to the heart of it. Right. Mm. So we might say that that is prophecy, right? The the spirit of, of revealing the truth, of telling the truth. I think a Pentecostal would call that the gift of discernment. Right. That's how they would phrase right. that. And, and as would we, mm. right? Um, but that but takes the place of prophecy. Yeah. Well, that's one of the, one of the gifts of prophecy within the Old Covenant. Mm. Not only was the prophet foretelling the future, yeah. the prophet was also revealing the truth of things, right? Um, whether one of the kings had sinned terribly or whatever. Yeah. Right? There's spiritual insight. The office of prophet ceases to exist with John the Baptist because he is the apex mm. of the office of prophet. He is the forerunner, and, but the gift of prophecy of, of that spiritual discernment absolutely still exists yeah. and, and is quite prevalent within the Orthodox Church. I knew a blind, a blind priest at, at uh, St. Tikhon's who could tell you what your confession was before you ever said it. Right? Really? And so if you were hiding something... He knew. He knew. It's also worth noting that the gift of prophecy or spiritual discernment, whatever terminology you want to use, is still under the authority of the person who possesses the gift. Mm. In other words, if you have an insight into one of your classmates or, or, or whatever, it is not necessarily immediately, it is not immediately necessary for you to blab that. Mm. Right? Right. What we would say primarily if you have an insight, it is to move you to pray, to intercede on their behalf. Oh, interesting. To, to get you to take it to Christ, not embarrass them in front of people. Right. Um, and so the, uh, and the other spiritual gifts that are, that are listed, uh, as Paul lists them, are absolutely uh, believed by the Orthodox Church. We just think they mean different things than, than Pentecostals do, I think. Yeah. So how did that process go from like the Pentecostal understanding? Because you obviously know quite well how Pentecostals understand um, and view that stuff. How is that for you taking the steps towards from Pentecostalism into Orthodoxy? I knew how the, I know how they used to understand it. Okay. One of the reasons that we left Pentecostalism is because it became shifting sand. Mm. So I remember the changeover between hymns and praise choruses. I remember um, the months and years that it took to leave the hymns, hymnals where they were. Yeah. And everything be cast on the screen. I was in the praise band at my church, uh, or in the orchestra, I guess. Everything started, started crumbling after that. Mm. Um, you know, when we were in the, uh, we were in the class here, right? And I asked everyone, can you tell me the, the, the two, at just the two points one and points two of your church's statement of faith? Yeah. Nobody could do it. Yeah. Nobody knew. Yeah. Nobody knew. And that makes me terribly sad. You can't have that answer or tell me what it what it tell me what it means to be non-denominational or tell me what it means to be church of god or tell me what it means to be methodist my my methodist family still can't answer that question yeah. for me i can tell you what it means to be orthodox 
Mm-hmm. And I can tell you what the Orthodox believe. But this room full of young people had no clue. And I don't say this in a pejorative sense, right? It's not yeah. their fault. It's right. not your fault. But if that's the culture, if that's what's being taught. Right. So again, I was there for the changeover. Yeah. Where we sat down, we put in, in, in reserve, so to speak, good, solid Protestant theology that people have been singing for 300 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we picked up our God is an awesome God. <laughs> yeah. Which is a perfectly true statement. Right. There's no theology there. What does that teach you about God? What does that teach you about grace? What does that teach you about mm, salvation? It's a shallow truth. Our God is an awesome God. Great. You know, Tennessee's got a f- good football team this year. <laughs> what does that have to do with living, right? Yeah. Um, and so we just began to, to feel like, like, this is insane. This is nonsense. I don't want to raise my hands to prove that I love Jesus. I don't want to, I don't want to give the Lord, I, I'm, forgive me, anybody that's listening to this, to give the Lord a, a hand clap of praise. What does that even mean? I didn't understand <laughs> it when I was 25. I'm yeah. now 50. I don't understand it still. And so then among that, we, we watched a documentary called From Jesus to Christ. It was on, it was on PBS. Your mileage may vary on PBS. <laughs> But it was about the construction of the Bible. Mm. And it was, it was uh, certainly not a, a, a Christian approach to the subject. It was a historical approach, to, or an attempted historical approach to the subject. And then you begin to learn all of these things, like the Masoretic text mm-hmm. is not the Old Testament. Certainly not what Paul and Jesus are quoting. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The fights and the arguments and the qualification process that the early church took in order to compile the scripture we were always led to believe that it was it sort of like floated down from heaven yeah yeah, yeah. Right? golden tablets right yeah, yeah yeah which is good old mormonism um, <laughs> which is this this idea that god wrote the bible yeah, yeah, yeah and therefore it is the word of god the problem is when you start digging scripture itself does not make the claims about itself right that we put on that it. we put on it yeah yeah Scripture never calls itself the Word of God. Mm. Scripture never claims to be an authority. You can't have sola scriptura because Scripture itself denies it, right? In the encounter with, with the uh, uh, Ethiopian eunuch who's reading the scroll of Isaiah, and he mm-hmm. encounters Philip. Philip says, do you know what you're reading? And the eunuch says, how can I unless somebody teaches me? Mm. Paul, when he's te- talking to Timothy... And this is something else that we, we discovered. When he's talking to Timothy, he says, attend to the public reading of Scripture, or don't neglect the public reading of Scripture. The reading of Scripture was not an individual act. Right? Protestants tend to want to put this on the Catholic Church, like, oh, the Catholic Church hid the Bible and they didn't want anybody to read it. Yeah, yeah. No, it was read publicly in every service. Yeah. As an act of the community, as the act of the assembly, as the act of the ecclesia who had been called together to manifest the church. So that was wrong. And so Paul doesn't say, so when he's talking to Timothy, do not neglect the public reading of Scripture, but he also says the foundation and the bulwark, Scripture is great for instruction unto salvation and the revelation of Christ, but he's talking about the Septuagint. He's not talking about his letters. He's not talking about Paul. He's not talking about the Gospels, right? Because they don't exist. Right. He's talking about the Septuagint. So the Septuagint, if we want to get really, really technical and really, really literal, the Septuagint is good for these things. Yeah, yeah. But he says the foundation and the bulwark of the truth is the church. It's not the scriptures. Okay? Which is the exact opposite of what mainline Protestants would hold. I mean, I would, in, in statements of faith, they begin with the inerrant word of scripture. Inerrancy. Yeah. Which, again, does not occur in the scriptures. It's nowhere in there. The early church began with, and and some Protestant traditions will use the Apostles' Creed, for example. Mm -hmm. These are early baptismal creeds, right? The Nicene Creed was an early baptismal creed. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, right? So the baptismal creed, what a Christian believed was, I believe in God. 
And God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't start with, I believe that the Bible is the inerrant word of God, right? Because for over 400 years, there was no such thing as a Bible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so watching this documentary and, and coming to all of these re- realizations and the fact that in our state, uh, we found it problematic how much emphasis was placed on the scriptures that the scriptures do not place themselves. Mm. The scriptures place the emphasis on the apostolic preaching and uh, the witness of Christ and the community, the church. And so we started out to look, we, we started looking for that church. Years later, it, it took us maybe three or four years, I suppose, we came into the Orthodox Church. Mm. Another thing that was also baffling to me as a Protestant. Now, granted, I was 25. I was, I was feeling myself, right? I mean, we were, <laughs> not, we were not the, shall we say, the most um, humble of people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I was 27, 27 years old, when I heard someone say for the first time, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, outside of a baptism. Wow. And it was in the Presbyterian Church. Hmm. And there was a call and response. There was this sort of liturgy to it. There was a structure to it. Uh, We stayed there for a while and then ultimately wound up Orthodox. Again, it's problematic within the Western sort of milieu of Christian denominations in which you have people who claim to be Trinitarian, right? The church that I was raised in claimed to be Trinitarian. Yeah. But we didn't pray that way. No, no, not at all. Well, why not? You see... You remember all of the the young people that were here. Mm -hmm. That's why not. Mm. Right? That is the result of not not praying in the Trinity, right? At some point, people will stop believing in the Trinity. If you don't pray it, you will stop believing in it. Yeah. Right? So I think it was in the 1960s, 1970s, sort of like the the Jesus people sort of movement and everything like that— Uh, most Protestants agreed to pray in Jesus' name. Yeah. To accept the oneness people who are modalists. Yeah. Right? There's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but they're all the same thing. Right. By the way, if if any of your listeners are trying to explain the Trinity with water... Heresy. It's modalism. Yeah. (laughs) It's not... So people stopped praying in the Trinity. Now go around your classes and ask somebody about the Trinity. Mm-hmm. Does it make a difference in your life? Why is it significant to believe the Trinity? Well, we certainly don't pray it, so why is it significant? For 2,000 years, people have believed the, 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 the bread and wine be, are, are the body and blood of Christ. Literally, yeah. When Zwingli said no, what does that then translate to? Right? If... If the grace of God is manifested and passed down through the material created order, mm-hmm. and Luther says no, if God in, in, in makes faith this ephemeral thing, God has hidden himself. You can't see him in the creation. He has hidden himself, and he deifies this, this thing called faith, which is an act of the intellect, right? Mm-hmm. It's not an act, right? It's not taking bread in his holy, pure, and blameless hands and giving thanks and breaking it and saying, this is my body, this is my blood. It's, I believe this thing. Here's the problem with that. And this is the problem with spiritualism. And anybody that would fall into the camp of spiritualism. James, and this is why Luther wanted it out. Right. <laughs> James said, you cannot have faith alone. Right? Scripture, does never, scripture never says, Paul never says we are saved by faith alone. That's not in the text. Certainly not in the Greek. Luther added it in. But James says the exact opposite. You cannot be saved by faith alone. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he said, well, you know, what if, what, if, what if my faith, what if my Christianity is this, you know, belief? I just confess the Lord. He says, the demons do this. Yeah. And they tremble. Do you tremble? I believe in God. Okay. Do you tremble? Do you recognize the holiness of God? Yeah. Do you recognize who it is that you're talking to? Are you just pulling the, the lever on a metaphysical snack machine? Mm. Right? Again, why the Orthodox 
church, the, the temple, uh, an Orthodox temple is constructed the way that it is, is because God established what a temple should look like. We didn't come up with this. Yeah. God did. And God said, I, I want you to worship in this way. Okay. We didn't come up with that. Right. God did. Right? And so the Eucharistic meal, as, as often as you do this, right? Do this in remembrance of me. And so from the very beginning, uh, from, from the very first century, this worship is going on. But what's also going on is the uh, continuing temple worship mm. of vespers and matins and date and hours of prayer and all of those things. Those are still going on, and they still continue to this day. Uh, the only quote-unquote new thing was the Eucharistic meal, yeah. right, which Christ him, himself established. I, the, the, the reason that I'm uh, you know, bringing all of that up is because if you stop doing something, if you stop praying something, yeah. it may be two generations, it may be three generations, but at some point... You're just going to lose it entirely. They will not believe it. When, when, when I was taking systematic theology, I like kind of similar to your experience growing up, it was like the Father, Son, the Holy Spirit. And I had heard the whole water analogy, and that's kind of how I thought of it. Like, it's all God, God wearing different masks or, you know, whatever. And I start taking systematic, and Terry Cross, to open the unit, says, it greatly disturbs me that we could remove the concept of the Trinity from the Protestant church, and we would look and live no differently. Oh, yeah, absolutely. absolutely. And, and, he said, and, he's, and he's like, I want that to scare you. I remember, I remember thinking that, and I was just like, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? Like, like, isn't that the whole thing? And he's, so there, there becomes the, that disconnect that you were talking about where it's like, oh, like, it's supposed to be our truth, but we don't really talk about it or treat it seriously. So whenever we do that, it, and like, that's one of the, I was telling my roommate about this, my frustrate, one of the things that I really appreciate about the Orthodox understanding of the Eucharist is not this scholastic over-explanation, over-scientific like, how, how does Jesus do it? I don't care. And, and, and whenever we, 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 had to do a, we had to do a reading for Doctrine of the Church where Orthodox, it was an Orthodox priest, he was just like, we know it happens. We believe that he said that, that this is literally, and so that's what we follow. We don't have to have this explanation because why do you need that explanation? That's the whole purpose of faith. And I was like, like I, it was so funny because whenever I read that, I, I was like, I've wanted to think like, yeah, that's literally the bread and body. But every time I read something scholastic, I hated it. I'm like, this is so dumb. This is like, it, like I could, I could never buy into it. But whenever, but, he, but here in the Orthodox perspective of just like, it is because he said so. I was like, oh, that's so beautifully simple. Yeah. And it's, it's led me in my, in whenever we, we take communion every, every Sunday on the church that I go to. Every time I take it, I, I was telling my roommate this. I was like, I, I cannot help but get extraordinarily emotional, if not cry, because it is, because as I take that, you know, wafer or whatever, as I take it and I think about this is Christ's body that was literally broken for me, so mine did not have to be. And if I get, and if my if my body is even greater glory, and then, and then just like going through that process mentally, it's like. Or we can just treat these as like our, 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 our grape shots for the weekend. Like, that feels irreverent. It feels dishonest. And like, and, and you know, and, and, and maybe this is a bit of a counter argument. There's sometimes that fallacy of just because it is old doesn't necessarily make it true. But there also seems to be the understanding in the Orthodox, like, this is what we've uniform, uniformly, uniformly. uniformly believed for most of church history how is like has orthodox faith shifted in any way where there's like a disagreement in approach or a disagreement of practice or is that one of those things that it doesn't even matter about the eucharist just i mean generally and um, generally and well certainly there have been schisms right okay not over the eucharist right uh i suppose the biggest change in terms of the eucharist is not orthodox it's catholic and the whole transubstantiation debacle um, no, uh, there's not been a, a shift in faith. Um, 
as St. Jude says in his epistle, this, you know, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, right? And so even, even within the ecumenical councils, they're not coming up with new theology, right? Mm-hmm. One, of the, one of the arguments that Athanasius has in, in the first ecumenical council in, in uh, 325, I think, uh, is, you know, combating Arianism, well, Christ right. isn't God. One of his chief arguments is, how have we been praying for the last 300 years? We've been praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That must mean that he is God, right? Yeah.